thank you for joining the Vintage Church NOLA podcast. We are a movement of truth, love, and community. For more information, please visit www.vcnola.com. Here is this week's message. Good morning. Got a question for you this morning. Have you ever created anything before? Maybe you are an artist and you've drawn a picture or you've painted something before or maybe you've written a song or sang a song or made a movie. Maybe you work with wood and you're a carpenter and you've built something before. Uh, If you're a parent, guess what? You've created something before. Something, right? Uh, there's a good chance that every single one of us in this room, in some way or another, have created something. Just a quick shout out to Nick Shelton. How cool is this sign? Created it, yes. Some of us are more creative than others, I'm just saying. But there's a good chance that you've created something, and as you've reflected on your own creation... Did you ever want that creation to limp along, languish, or even die? Of course not, right? If, again, if you're a parent, your children, you're like, you're not, you don't want them to limp along in life. You don't want them to languish. You want them to succeed. You want them to do their very best. And as we kick off this series, Flourishing People, what I want you to think about is This reality, you were created to flourish. God's intention, God's plan, God's will for your life is not to limp along, not to languish, but instead it is to flourish. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. This is kind of the big idea for Today, flourishing matters because God's will for his creation was, is, and always will be flourishing. One more time. Flourishing matters because God's will for all of his creation was, is, and always will be flourishing. That is his intention, that is his desire, that is his will. And what we're going to spend the next few moments today doing is unpacking what that means and why flourishing matters. Over the next several weeks, we're going to look at what it means to flourish and how we flourish. And where we're going to go for that is in the very beginning of the Bible, So if you have a Bible, open it up to Genesis chapter 1. If you're like, I don't know anything about the Bible, here's the good news for you today. Open it up to page 1 and you're there. But the reason that we're turning in Genesis to talk about flourishing is because what I believe is that what Genesis 1 and 2 show us is it gives us a paradigm. It gives us a pattern. It gives us God's picture of what it looks like in how we are to flourish. Think about it like this. It's God's original design. This is what he set up. This is how creation is supposed to be. 
how it is meant to be. So Genesis chapter 1, we're just going to read a few verses today. Genesis 1, verse 31, and then we're going to read Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. Four verses. And here's what it says. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was what? Very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were what? Finished. And all the host of them. On the seventh day, God what? Finished his work that he had done. And he what? He rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God what? Rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, up to this point in the book of Genesis, what has happened? God has been busy, right? He's been creating. Genesis 1 gives us an overview of all of creation. Day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, day 6. God finishes all of creation and he calls it what? Very good. And then what we read at the end of chapter 2, by the way, here's one of those places where like the chapters just don't work and make sense. Because the reason we've gone into chapter 2 is because that's really the end of this section, chapter 2, verse 3. We get to the end of this section, and God finishes his work, and he does what? He rests. And what I want you to see this morning is that there is a lot built into this idea of God declaring creation very good. And there is a lot built into this idea of God resting. So I want to ask a question tied to why flourishing matters that I want to answer. How do we know we were created to flourish? Because it's one thing for us just to be like, you know, flourishing sounds nice. It's another thing to maybe have this like internal desire to say, I want to flourish. But perhaps the reason that flourishing sounds nice and the reason that we have this internal desire to flourish is because the scriptures tell us that God's intention all along was for us to flourish. So how do we know that we were created to flourish? First, because God said so. God said so. God's creation was very good. Look at verse 31 again of Genesis chapter 1. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was what? Very good. Have you ever done something and stepped back from that thing you did and like looked at it, took a deep breath and smiled? You know, there, there might be something like you've, you've built something, you've baked a cake. I know some of you love lawn care. That's like one of the worst things in my mind, but maybe you've mowed your lawn and you see the lines in your lawn and you step back and you, you take that breath and you're like, look at that masterpiece. This past week, I'm not sure what has gotten into me, 
Maybe it's a demon, but I've started to, I'm kidding, I'm kidding by the way. But I've, I've done a lot of house projects, which that's why I said maybe it's like a demonic attack that I want to do anything in my house. And so this past week, I redid my entire home office. I painted the entire office. I bought two by tens and cut them to fit. I found the studs in my wall and hung brackets and put those shelves that I stained on those brackets. I know some of you are like, this is like a day's work. Not, no, 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 not for me, right? Yesterday, I spent all day, like eight full hours painting our master bedroom. And I'm like, what's wrong with me? But I was at least, at the end of all of these projects, able to step back, look at what I had accomplished, take a deep breath, and say, hey, I'm pleased with this work. When you read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, God declaring that creation was very good, that's what you're getting. God stepping back and taking a deep breath and saying, this is good. In fact, if you look at Genesis 1 and you go back, you're going to find six other times in Genesis 1 where God declares creation good. In verse 4, he says it's good. In verse 10, it's good. Verse 12, it's good. Verse 18, it's good. Verse 21, it's good. Verse 25, it's good. And you get to verse 31 and it's what? It's very good. In fact, if you want to take a deep dive into the book of Genesis, one of the things that you're going to find is that there is this pattern of sevens in Genesis 1 and 2. Seven times creation is very good. How many days are in creation, by the way? Just saying, look it up. So this idea of God declaring creation to be good, what does he mean when he calls these things Good. One commentator says it like this, to, to declare creation good draws attention to an object's quality and its fitness for its purpose. John Walton in his book, The Lost World of Adam and Eve, says this, good refers to a condition in which something is functioning optimally as it was designed to do in an ordered system. It is working the way God intended to do. I'm not going to lie to you. The last few days, I've been waiting to wake up in the middle of the night to a huge crash. You know why? Because I'm scared to death that those shelves are going to collapse under the weight of my books. So yeah, the shelves look great. They look fantastic on the wall. But for them to be very good is for them to do what? Actually stay on the wall and hold the books. And so when God declares creation good, what he's saying is that everything that he's created not only looks good, it not only has aesthetic appeal, but it's actually doing the thing that it was meant to do all along. So God calls it Good, but then he calls it what? Very good. And there's something more to this very good. Because in day one through six, he looks at individual things. He looks at light, and he looks at the sun, and he looks at the stars, and he looks at humanity. And all of those things are good. But when he gets to the end of day six, when he gets to the end of creating, he calls creation very good. 
And I think Gordon Wenham gets at what very good means. He describes it like this. He says, it's the harmony and perfection of the completed heavens and earth. They express more adequately the character of their creator than any of the separate components can. Do you, do you get that? So when God steps back and calls all of creation very good, he's saying, look, the individual pieces that what I have created are good, but when they're all working together, when all of creation is completed, and when all of the things I've made are working, it is what? It's very good. And in order to understand what it means for creation to be very good, you have to understand what God is doing in Genesis 1 and 2. And there's three words that I want you to think about. I want you to think about order. Everybody say order. I want you to think about non-order. Everybody say non-order. And then I want you to think about disorder. Everybody say disorder. When God creates everything, there is non-order. And when he creates humanity, and we're going to look, about, look at this in, over the next few weeks, he gives us the job of taking the non-order and doing what? Ordering it. That's what he tells humanity. When he creates Adam and Eve, he says, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. And what he's saying is like there are parts of our world that are non-ordered. They need to be put in order. For all of you organizers out there, like this creation account should sound incredible. Right? Oh, I get to alphabetize the world? Excellent. So what God is doing when he says there's this very good element, he's saying, look, creation is good. Things are working. But now it is humanity's responsibility to take the non-order and put it into order. Think about it like this. I don't know if you've ever moved before, right? Before Rachel and I bought our house, we moved like 13 times. It was terrible. And I hated moving because one of the things that drove me nuts about moving was packing everything and then unpacking everything, right? That's the worst part about moving. And the thing with me is I never like keeping things in boxes. I like to get everything out and then be settled. So you know that I'm not a night owl, right? New Year's Eve, I think I went to bed at like 8.30. I'm not, I kid you not, I fell asleep on the couch, couldn't go any later. But when I move, I will stay up to like 3 a.m. unpacking, hanging things on walls, moving furniture around because I want to immediately live in what? Order. And so God is challenging us in the creation account to say, look, there's non-order. I need you to order it. But guess what happens in Genesis chapter 3? Disorder. Disorder enters the picture in the creation account in Genesis 3. Here's what it says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the, tree, of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. 
But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It is at this moment in the story when disorder enters the picture. Something that God did not intend. And what I want you to see and what I want you to understand and how this ties into flourishing is this reality. We can turn non-order into order, but it takes someone else to turn disorder into order. And what all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation tells us is that the only one who can take disorder and turn it into order is who? Jesus. God, through his son Jesus, makes a way to turn disorder, also known as sin, and change it into order. Jesus, who is the Son of God, came to earth and put on flesh and lived a sinless life, an ordered life, if you will, and he died for the sins of humanity. And he rose from the grave, defeating sin, death, and hell. And what Scripture tells us is that when we turn away from our sin, when we turn away from that disorder, and in faith turn to trust Jesus, we can have life. The, not only the non-order in our life, but the disorder in our life, Jesus can remove that sin and take that disorder and make it into order. He can help us begin to flourish. We're going to talk about all kinds of things over the next several weeks as it comes to flourishing. And one of the dangers in talking about this subject is beginning to think that you can flourish without God. And what I want you to understand, even from Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, is that ultimately there is no ability within ourselves to flourish outside of God. Because there is disorder in your life and in my life, in our world, and we can't fix that disorder. There is sin that's in our life, in our world, that we cannot fix. And as long as there is that sin in our life and in our world, we will not be able to do what? Flourish. So we need Jesus to help us and provide a way for us to be able to flourish. So God tells us that creation, we were meant to flourish, that creation is very good, and then he affirms creation's goodness. By declaring creation good and by declaring it very good, he affirms that goodness. He's the only one who is the creator. All of us are creators, but we're like sub-creators. There's only one who can create from nothing. God. So God is the only one who is qualified to adequately determine whether or not his creation is in fact good and very good. So by God declaring creation good, he's affirming that goodness. And the reason that we can say creation is good or very good is because our creator is what? Good. 
Creation, Gordon Wyndham says, bears witness to the greatness and goodness of God. So just think about it like this. Your very desire to flourish, the very fact that you want to flourish, tells us something about who our God is. So God said it was so. But it's not just that he said it was so. We know that we were created to flourish, number two, because God made it so. What do I mean? Well, what we learn about in Genesis 2 is that God's work was finished. Go back and look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were what? Thus the heavens and the earth were what? Finished. And all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God did what? Finished his work that he had done. And he what? He rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God what? He rested from his work that he had done in creation. Now, the question that we have to think about is what was God finishing And why would God want to rest? Because here's what we do know about God. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. So despite the fact that we actually need to rest, you have to sleep, and it is beneficial to take a day off from work, we have to do that because we are finite created beings. God is infinite in power and wisdom and knowledge. God doesn't have to rest. But he did rest. Why did God rest? He rested because of what he finished. So when you read in Genesis 1 about God finishing or creating, what he was finishing was his temple. Now, I want you to uh, follow me just for a moment as I give you a little bit of like ancient Near Eastern context into what was going on. Moses was writing the book of Genesis in an ancient Near Eastern context. Similar stories were being passed around, and this was kind of the thought of the day. In the Bible, in the ancient Near East, the temple was viewed as a microcosm, the temple being where God dwelt. So this was going on in the ancient Near East. The temple is designed with the image of the imager of the cosmos. So even, even the tabernacle, when we read about the tabernacle in the book of Exodus, there are things inside the tabernacle that point to creation. Things like the colors used, things that like there was a menorah where there was light. These things pointed to creation. Similarly, the temple's related to the functions of the cosmos. What was supposed to be happening in our world was happening in the tabernacle or the temple. And what the, New, what the Old Testament wants you to see is how the creation of the temple is often parallel to the creation of the cosmos. So what does all that imply? It, it implies this. In the Bible, the cosmos can be viewed as a temple. Now, this makes sense in light of what we know about God. God wants to do what with his people? He wants to dwell with his people. 
So in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and even in Genesis 3, God is dwelling with Adam and Eve in the garden. I don't know if you remember the concentric circles I showed you guys a few months ago from crossover series through the book of Exodus, talking about creation and talking about earth and heaven and Eden and how Eden was this place where there was an overlap between heaven, where God dwells, and earth, where we dwell. And that in Eden is where heaven and earth overlap. And what we see in the, the, the first couple of chapters of Genesis is this reality. That God finishes his work, meaning he finishes his temple. He finishes the place where he is going to dwell. But God cannot rest until he has a place to rest. Are you following me? Does this make sense? So God finishes his work, and then he rests from creation. When the cosmos were finished, that is his temple, he could rest. And well, when I think about resting, what I tend to think about are some of the ways in which I like to rest. On a, on a fantastic Sunday afternoon, I go home, and you know what happens on the couch? I lose track of time. Time stops for like three hours. And yes, I will take a three-hour nap. Some people call that sleep. That's a nap. Right? Or if I'm on vacation and I'm going to the beach, I will pull out my beach chair and I will sit there with a book and I will have the ocean in view and I will lose track of time and I will rest. See, what we tend to think of is we tend to think of rest as like this environment or ceasing from work. And that's all of those things are true. But in Genesis 1 and 2, when it says that God rests, what we're getting at is that security and stability have been established. So God can rest when everything is set up as it's meant to be and earth is operating as it should and Adam and Eve have the things that they need. Humanity has the things we need to flourish. Think back again to that house home illustration. Where like you might have a house. You might have purchased a house. Or you might be renting a house. And the house has the walls and it has the amenities where it's got running water and, all, and lights and electricity and all of those sorts of things. But until you've unpacked and you've made that house a home, you're not able to rest. And part of the reason you're not able to rest is because if things aren't set up and they don't have their place and you can't live in that house, is there safety and stability? Not really. But once you've unpacked that house and things are where they're at and you can make a meal or you have your bed set up and you can sleep, the electricity's on, the water's turned on, all of a sudden you can do what? Rest. Because the house becomes a home and it's finished. That's what we're talking about when we read in Genesis 1 and 2 about this. God rests in that he's finished setting up creation. But now it's time for creation to begin to function. Now I want you to notice something about the seventh day. 
If you go back and you look at Genesis 1 and you read day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, day 6, you will notice a refrain that repeats. It was evening and it was morning. When you get to the end of day 7, is there an end to day 7? In the creation account, there is no end to day seven. Why is that it's so important? It's important because God's rule over his creation is unending. It's not as if we're turning the calendar over and we're moving on to a next day, as if that doesn't happen. That's not what Moses is trying to do when he writes the book of Genesis. What he wants us to understand is that God has set everything up and now he's put us in charge to make that non-order into order. But all along, God has finished his creation and he rests, but even in his resting, he is ruling. He is in control. He is reigning. And that is significant for what we're talking about because only we can flourish when God is ruling and reigning over his creation. We need him in our lives and in our world if we want to experience flourishing. So God said so. God made it so. How can we take what we've just looked at in these four verses and begin to summarize all the things that we've said surrounding flourishing? In his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, Cornelius Planning, I think, gives us the best summary of what we're looking at in Genesis 1 and 2. This is what he says. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. It's a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. It's a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Shalom is flourishing. And what I hope you see from Genesis 1 and 2 is that flourishing is the way things ought to be. This is the story you were created into. I think one of the greatest challenges in life is trying to figure out what your story is. And there are countless stories out there 
that you could identify with. And you could begin to allow that story to frame your reality. But the reality is, is that this book, Scripture, gives us our worldview. It gives us our story. And so as we think about this desire that's within us to want to flourish, what I'm trying to do is give you the story that this desire makes sense in. To say that the reason that you want to flourish is because what this story tells us is that God actually created you to flourish. And then what it tells us is that God set up the ways in which we actually can flourish. The story tells us why we're not flourishing. And the story even tells us how we get back to where we can flourish. What you have to do is accept that this is your story. And when you accept that this is your story, then you begin to know not only that you were created to flourish, but you begin to understand the things that you need to flourish. So what do we need to flourish? This is where we're going to be going for the next five weeks as we talk about flourishing people. We're going to look at faith formation. That you and I, all of us, we were created to have a relationship with our Creator. And that was a relationship that was meant to grow and develop and deepen. After that, we're going to talk about loving relationships. That all of us as humans, we were created to be in relationship with other people. Yes, in the family, in the home, between a husband and wife, but even more so between all of humanity, between friends, co-workers, neighbors, strangers. Number three, we were created for meaningful purpose. Every single one of us, God has gifted us with a unique purpose in his creation. And part of flourishing is not only discovering that purpose, but then living out that purpose. Number four, holistic health. You were created to be healthy, both physically and mentally and emotionally. And then lastly, one of the ways in which we know we're flourishing is when we have financial stability, meaning our needs are being met and we're able to care for ourselves. And so we're going to spend the next five weeks looking at each one of these things and what Genesis 1 and 2 has to tell us about these things. How we begin to flourish in those areas and how we help other people flourish in those areas. And I want to close by giving us some diagnostic questions to consider this week. For each one of these messages, you're going to get some questions that I want you to think on and I want you to pray on. V-group leaders, in your V-group discussion, in the discussion guide itself, are these questions. Talk about these questions Chew on these questions this week. Think about these questions. Here they are. Number one, what story are you living in? 
If it's not the story that Scripture provides us, then guess what? You're never going to be able to flourish the way that you want to. So what story are you living in? Number two, where are you flourishing? I hope and pray that in some of these areas that I just mentioned, you're actually flourishing. You're growing. And you're living life the way that God wants you to live. But number three, chances are there are areas in life where we're not flourishing. So where do you need to flourish? The first step in beginning to flourish in any of these areas is simply beginning to identify that area. Where it's like, this is not what God wants. I need better. And lastly, there is a danger in talking about flourishing when we make it all about ourselves. Where it's just like, well, all I need to worry about is am I flourishing? Because I think part of God's intention in creating in Genesis 1 and 2 is not just for Adam and Eve, not just for the first humans to flourish, but as they take non-order and make it into order for all of creation to flourish. So for us, then, we have to ask the question, who around us needs to flourish? Because as we begin to flourish, guess what? We are partly responsible for those others around us to flourish. I truly believe that God's desire for my life, for your life, for our church, for our community is to flourish. And I think that it is a lifetime of work. But when we begin to understand that this is God's intention, that this is God's desire, that the desire that we have within us to flourish is something that God has put in us, then we begin to look in the right place. Then we begin to pursue the right things. And in the pursuit of God, we begin to find flourishing. And my prayer for us as a church is that as we pursue flourishing as a community, and we begin to flourish as a church, that the flourishing we experience here would overflow into our community out there. Because that's what God intends. And that's what God desires. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you that your desire from the very beginning was for us to flourish. God, help us this week as we reflect on this message and we reflect on Genesis 1 and 2. As we think about those diagnostic questions, Father, help us to be real with ourselves. To ask the hard questions and to answer them truthfully. God, so that we can lean into who you want us to be and, and how you want us to be. So we can begin to flourish the way that you want us to flourish. 
And so that when we look out into our family and into our neighborhood, into our community, into our world, we can extend that kind of flourishing life to others. So we pray for you to move and to work and have your way among us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining the Vintage Church NOLA podcast. If you're enjoying this content, please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you next week.